Well, it's bringing what we learn from yoga into our daily life. Really, that's what it's for. It's to live a more full life. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. The more I learn, the more convinced I become that living really is a skill. It's something at which we can become better. My guest today just further reinforces that belief for me. Her name is Pamela Selig. She is author of Threads of Yoga, Themes, Reflections, and Meditations to Weave into Your Practice. Really enjoyed this book a lot. It's a guide for students and teachers inspired by the Yoga Sutras. Pam is someone who began her yoga journey more than 25 years ago when an illness interrupted her Wall Street career. She began meditating as a complementary therapy with startling results. Along with speeding up her recovery, the impact of her meditation led to a lifelong pursuit of perceiving and sharing yoga wisdom. Pam eventually trained at Integral Yoga Institute in New York and began teaching to friends at a local convent in New Jersey. In 2009, she opened her own studio called Lotus Mind and Body. After a rewarding nine years, she sold the studio to focus on writing this book. And I'm so glad she did. In this conversation, we talk about a lot of things related to living well and some things related to, as I've said, yogic philosophy and energy. We talk about the witness, cultivating a deeper relationship with the observer, quieting the mind, meditation, of course. We explore things like prana, kundalini, the chakras. And then as I almost always do, we get into writing and the creative process. And I love what Pam shares about how she got the book written and published. So whether you don't do yoga, whether you're just starting out or whether you're a seasoned practitioner, uh, I invite you to pick up this book and to listen to this interview. I think you'll be glad you did. And I think that you will learn to live more skillfully, that you will live a better life by incorporating the things that Pam is talking about in this book, if you're not already. All right. With that, please enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Pamela Selig. And by the way, you can find her and her work online at PamelaSelig.com. Pam, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you, Brilliant. Thank you so much for having me. Will you tell me, please, what is life about? Well, what a question. Wow. Um, I think, first, I guess I don't know, uh, and that's okay. Um, but what I think at this point is it seems to be about learning and learning uh, about relationship, relationship with others, relationship with the, the world, the physical world, and then also learning about who we really are. And as we learn and accept who we really are, I think we bring that into our lives, into the world more. And, and that may be what, what life is about. But it's it's a it's a process and a progress. So um, I'm just trying to stay open and learn as much as I can. Beautiful. Me too. That's part of why I've invited you on the show. I'm really grateful <laughs> that you accepted the invitation. You've written a book called Threads of Yoga: 
themes, reflections, and meditations to weave into your practice. You got here through, as uh, every author does, through uh, a journey. (laughs) I want to start by asking you, what was the moment you knew you were going to write this book? It, it, I think that was also a progress or process because I started to look for this book. I started to look in bookstores to find a book that would help me as, as a yoga teacher bring more of the wisdom, more of the philosophy that I loved into class. I tried to bring it into class, but it was, it was a little awkward at first. And I, and I just sometimes felt inspired, sometimes not so much. So I was always looking for a little support, a little help with that. And I couldn't find the book. And then after a few years, I thought, I'm going to write that book. And, uh, and then it percolated for many years. Um, and uh, so it really came out of my own need for something and hoping that others would find it of help too. And then it sort of grew to not for only teachers, but for people that I knew uh, or even didn't know that I thought this information would really be helpful for, kind of what everyone should know about yoga philosophy. Mm. May I ask about your faith background? Is yoga and Eastern studies something that, is that what you were raised in or is it something that you're kind of an immigrant to <laughs> this, this land of thinking? What, what was that like? Uh, it's not something I was raised uh, to in or to. I was raised Catholic, went to Catholic school. Um, most of my schooling, uh, elementary, some of middle or middle school was not, that was public school. But then I did go to a, a like a girls Catholic high school. Um, so yeah, this really wasn't in my, my worldview or my, I wasn't exposed at all, really. Um, so when I discovered these ideas, uh, really in my late 20s, I was just amazed, enthralled, and, and dove right in. I really connected and resonated with it, uh, with the yoga tradition. And then, of course, explored uh, other traditions such as Buddhism, um, shamanism, and, and I found it all very fascinating and very helpful. Um, and then I also started to get more interested in the mystical aspect of Christianity. Uh, and I connected with that more than really what I had been brought up in, uh, the, the traditional. It was more the, the mystical uh, tradition that sort of runs through most wisdom traditions that I really connected with. Mm. You know, I understand as well that you, you had a career on Wall Street, so mm-hmm. maybe a life that was a little bit different from the one you're living now, and that you had an illness of some kind. And uh, I've seen for sure in my own life and in my work as a coach that, you know, pain has this incredible way of bringing us to awareness, right? In fact, you include a great quote in the book about, I forget who it was, but about uh, suffering is the fires of consciousness or something <laughs> like that, right? Yes. Which incidentally is one of the things I appreciate about your book. So many great quotes and so many that I hadn't heard of, even though I love to collect these things. But will you tell me a little bit, right? I'm per- and by the way, I'm reminded of this saying, I forget who said it about, like a, a man can be counted on to do the right thing after he's exhausted every other option. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come to a practice that works for us only off, often only through trial and error or through pain and, 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 you know, searching. 
And uh, it sounds maybe like that's what happened, but will you take us back to what was this life like on Wall Street and how is it that your illness factored in and then led you to the path you're following now? Sure. Uh, well, uh, working in the financial industry, I was in my 20s, uh, moved to New York City, uh, trying to you know pay the rent and, and uh, ended up on Wall Street because little did I know that we were right in the beginning of a historical bull market. So my timing was excellent. So I, I got a job downtown, not that that was ever a calling or anything like that. I just knew people that I knew were making money. And that was my goal at that time in my life. So uh, I was, you know, very successful in, it's all relative, but uh, I became fairly successful, but it was through uh, not really living a balanced life. It was the culture of working so many hours and uh, not necessarily taking care of yourself. And eventually the, um, it took a toll on my health and I got a Bell's palsy, which I never heard of. I woke up one morning and uh, half of my face was paralyzed. So very dramatic. I, of course, thought I was having a stroke, went to the emergency room. And they explained that it is kind of common. It's not life-threatening. Most people recover, but some don't. You just have to wait. And I did not know how to wait and not do anything. So that was a huge challenge. And I couldn't go to work. This was pre-internet. I couldn't, I, staying home was difficult. I couldn't read really. I had one eye patched. Watching television didn't work. So I went to, started going to many different doctors and trying to find a course of action. They all just said, wait. And one doctor said, have you tried alternative medicine or meditation? Which I didn't, again, never had heard of alternative medicine or and I've heard of meditation, but never thought to try it. But like you said, I was desperate. I would have never turned in this direction at all. Um, and I skimmed some information, didn't read a lot, began meditating. Didn't know you really should start, you know, slowly and build up. I was that type A personality and just, you know, you know took four hours aside and did some meditation, thought that. And some strange occurrences started happening that I couldn't explain. And I also really loved meditation I found, which okay, was surprising. If, if I may jump in there for a moment, some sure. strange occurrences. So will you share one or two of those with me? Yeah, sure. Um, first, I started to hear sounds, inner sounds like a bell or a waterfall or even a flute sound. And I would, you know, look around, get up, I was in an apartment, so I would try to, I thought that it was another, an outside sound, but I realized it was not. Um, and then I started to see lights, like with my eyes closed, like, a, like fireworks, like a light show. And when I went to sleep at night, I would see it on the ceiling if I had a lot of meditation that day. And I closed my eyes and I'd see the same thing behind my eyes. So odd things I couldn't really explain. Mm. And and, and, I started, me, sorry to keep interrupting, but I'm curious no. here, what was the method of meditation? Was it just something, you know, you closing your eyes and focusing on your breath or did you have a teacher at the time? I'm wondering if this is something perhaps that was associated with the particular style of meditation you were following or what did you practice? 
looking back, I knew nothing. And I thought it was just about the breath. And I did use a mantra. I did have a, a very simple mantra that I had read. So I sort of just took it. It was a Sanskrit mantra and used that. It was three syllables. And, and that was it. Um, and I do think because I was so upset about what was happening, I couldn't go to work. Uh, my, wor my world had, I was devastated. So looking back, I think I was trying to escape in a way, my life and my body and the world. So, so I think that played a huge role, whereas I'm not saying that's healthy or the way to do it. Mm -hmm. That just was the situation that I was in. So when I s started to go to more alternative healers, uh, like energy workers that I'd never heard of, a meditation or a, a breathing teacher, it wasn't really meditation, um, I would ask about these sounds or lights or other phenomena that were, was occurring. And, you know, people would say they don't know, or do a little research about yoga. And I was like, yoga, what, what would that have to do? I thought that was just postures or, you know, bending into pretzel like poses. But then I got some information on yoga and when I read about meditation from the yogic perspective, I actually read about noises that you could hear, things like a bell, things like a flute. I read about lights that you could see and what that was. And then, so that sort of validated the other yogic information that I was getting. So then it just calmed me down. I realized what was happening and I sort of said, okay, I think I can, I know I have a path to sort of get back to health. So that was my start, kind of long-winded. But like you said, I know a lot of people who it's through the illness that they're turned on to these other kind of worldviews or practices. Yeah, pain really is the great awakener. <laughs> um, what do people, what do most people not understand or maybe even get wrong about yoga? That yoga is about just the postures that that is yoga. And um, that's it. That is a part of it. But one teacher described it that if, if yoga is a car, uh, the postures are like a wheel. You know, they're important. They're one aspect of it, but it, they're, it's, it's part of the journey. And it's, it's sort of a tool like breath work, but there's so much more. Yeah, no doubt. And I came across a term, you've probably heard this in, in your study and your work, make mindfulness, right? This idea that especially maybe corporate America has taken aspects of mindfulness practice, or maybe even aspects of spirituality and almost sanitize them. And they can be beneficial to health, right? We can see that the moment you breathe in a, in a deliberate way, in a slower way that there's physiological benefits and things like this. And I think that yoga is maybe the same way that you can do it in a way that's not spiritual whatsoever, or you can do it in a way that includes incredible devotion and it can be part of a spiritual practice, but it doesn't have to be. And there's no judgment about either one. But as I hear you talking about what people don't understand or, or maybe get wrong about yoga and thinking that it's just these postures, I can, I can see some of that. And, and it is one thing that I love about your book that it does include some of this yogic philosophy a lot of yogic philosophy for those who are interested to go deeper. And you use a term in the book I was really intrigued by, which is practicing yoga off the mat. What do you mean by that? 
Well, it's bringing what we learn from yoga into our daily life. Really, that's what it's for. It's to live a more full life. So, for instance, the postures, they are very beneficial. I don't want to discount them. So when you're on a mat and you're challenged, uh, sort of at your edge with a posture, and you, the teacher says, stay here and relax. So you're not relaxed. You're, you're holding a posture. Your muscles are engaged and you're tense. And then you're like, wow, what is, I can relax in this pose. And then you relax and you realize you can breathe. You, and it, make, it actually allows you to stay in the pose longer. So in life, when you're in a painful situation, like you're talking to somebody who it's a painful conversation and you're tense and all of a sudden you think, even though this is challenging, I can relax and I can breathe here with this person. So you're not adding to the suffering. We all suffer. We all have joy. We're not trying to um, get out of that. That's part of life. But we're not making it worse or adding to it by adding tension where we don't need it. And we can learn that on the yoga mat and bring that right off the mat. That's just one of the minor ways. Yeah, that's beautiful. What a wonderful description. And uh, I think about that in learning science, what I've heard called transference, right? Where you learn something in one area, but you can apply it in another area. And exactly what you're saying, how remarkable that we can learn something from this embodied practice and carry it into a conversation or a circumstance, a boring meeting <laughs> perhaps, mm -hmm. or, you know, an event that we don't really want to attend, but being present nevertheless and relaxing into that. Um, wonderful. You describe in your book also, you tell a couple of really great stories, um, many great stories, but one of them, so I want to, I want to shift our conversation a little bit to this idea of the witness, the observer, many names you point out, you give a great list of names for this, but you, you share the story about the image of a periscope. Will you, will you talk about that here? Sure. Um, what I love about the yogi journey is, at least what I experienced is, I would have experiences and sort of be baffled and then learn about them later, maybe in, in uh, texts or in different commentaries, different sages that wrote about them. And that's what happened with me with the witness. I really hadn't put too much attention on that idea. And in meditation, and this is sort of years down the road, years into practice, I would be meditating and sometimes, you know, you get a little vision, it helps you stay calm. It would be a calm, for me, it was water, like a calm ocean. And sometimes this periscope would pop up out of the water. And at first it would kind of derail my meditation because I would think, oh, that's cool or that's funny or but after a while, when it kept happening, I was like, oh, wow, okay, I'm going to just sit with the periscope. And then, and I could feel it in my heart center. That's sort of in the body where, it, where I could feel when the periscope popped up. And, and the periscope was just very calm, very soothing. And I kind of gravitated toward it in, in meditation. And then I learned about the witness and kind of synchronistically. And I thought, oh, that's the periscope. That's the part that's always there watching non-judgmentally, -judge whether or not there's a storm, it's always there just watching. So that was kind of my, uh, I don't know if it's my subconscious or way of 
um, experiencing this idea and embodying this idea of, of the witness consciousness. Mm. Yeah, thank you. So I imagine just with that bit of description for anyone listening, many people listening this far into the interview, <laughs> they already have an awareness of and a relationship with the witness or the observer. But whether they do or not, they're just hearing about it for the first time. I wonder if you would share what is your experience of how we can cultivate a stronger relationship or a healthier or a more complete relationship with, with, our, with our witness or the witness? Well, the main text that I refer to in the book is called the Yoga Sutras, written about 2,500 years ago by a, an Indian sage named Patanjali and a revered sage. And he sort of tells us how to do it. His, the sutras are 196 little statements, not quite sentences, that describe what yoga is, how to do it, and the ultimate self-realization. And, and uh, if I can just jump in there for a moment, as I understand it, it's not quite scripture, right? These aren't commandments. It's not do this and thou shalt and not that, right? It's a little different. Mm -hmm. It's not. It's more, how can you align with your true nature? How can you find who you really are so that you'll be more peaceful, be more joyful. And as your first question, this may be what life is about. This is what Patanjali is writing about. But the witness, the first three of the sutras, the first one is now, uh, now we begin yoga, begin our yoga practice. The second is yoga is the quieting of the mind or mind stuff, that inner narrator. And the third which refers to the witness really is, and then the seer can abide in her, his or her true nature. And then the seer can abide in his or her true nature. So when we quiet the mind, then we can abide in our true nature. And our true nature is the witness, is this presence that's always there that we just don't have access to if we don't quiet the mind. And really, what yoga is, is ways to, the path to quiet the mind. We're all different, so we have to take different routes or paths, but there's many different ways in the yoga tradition. Um, there's no right way or better way. It's just, we try them out for ourselves. But anyway, so this idea of getting to this place really behind our thoughts or beyond our thoughts Right there is the witness. And when we go a little deeper, we can find that the witness is how we are all connected. That's the depth of the, that's what's really so beautiful. Because if we never go to that depth, if we don't know that that's there, we feel very separate. We feel like, you know, we, we're on our own. It's a harsh life. You know, we have to, it's a kind of survival of the fittest uh, because how would we think otherwise? Um, and it's, it's depressing. It's anxiety inducing. However, if we can get to that deeper place, it really does help. I think of like a forest. Um, and now we know through scientific research that the trees look like they're separate, but underneath, they're all connected and they're all talking. And I think that's how it is for, for people. It looks like we're all separate, but if we can just quiet the mind, which isn't bad, it's just a tool that we have, and go 
beneath that, then we get the support, we get the direction, and we feel the love. So it's, it's important. It's important to do that, or at least try. <laughs> yeah, thank you for, for sharing that. What did you learn that surprised you as you wrote this book? And how do you think your life is different now after having written it? I learned so many things, honestly. Um, but I think the practice of yoga, and when I say yoga, uh, it's synonymous for me with meditation. So when I, pra- when I wrote the book, the practices that I have of yoga and meditation led the way. They helped me in every single way. And I think that's the same with no matter what your goals or what your driven to do. I think I was surprised that, you know, no matter every step I took, it, it, was, it was really the practice that helped me. And that was a, a bit of a surprise and it, it helped me along in a lot of different ways. That's awesome. Will you talk for a moment about how did you structure this book? There were a few uh, iterations of it and I have to give credit to my editor, uh, at the publisher, Sarah Stanton, she was terrific and really understood the concept right away and, uh, and just gave me a lot of support. But I, um, I, wanted, I wanted to start with these major themes. I didn't want it to be so complicated. You know, there's a lot of great texts that I refer to or people could go and read uh, themselves if they really want to get a little bit deeper uh, do a little bit deeper study. This is really just the, the beginning. The first section was the foundational themes that I think are just so helpful universally. And then the second part, uh, the ethical precepts, the yamas and niyamas. I think that's um, what most people skip over because they seem obvious. You know, nonviolence. We sort of all know we shouldn't hurt anything or kill anything. So we kind of skip over it. But it's actually really important and really valuable to deepen a practice and to find that peace within. So, so I wanted that to be a part of the book. And then the third part, the chakras, you don't really need to know about your energy system, the energy body, but it can be very helpful to know. And this idea of this psycho-spiritual, you know, psychological and spiritual aspect of our beings can um, explain a lot of things to people, a lot of behavior, a lot of can help with quieting the mind. I think it's very fascinating also. So I wanted to include that. And so I thought those three sections sort of in that order made the most sense for a person who maybe has been doing yoga for a couple of years and just wants to learn more, but maybe doesn't want to do a teacher training because Yoga students often ask their teachers when they start to wonder, why do I feel so good? Like, what, what's really happening here? And the teacher says, yeah, you should do a teacher training because you will learn more. But a lot of people don't have the time or they know they really don't want to teach. But where do you go to learn more? So I thought this information would be kind of the next level. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And uh, although I do not teach yoga uh, and I feel like it, I barely practice. <laughs> I do some. I found a lot of value in the book and I appreciate the way you structured it because I've not read the yoga sutras 
and I've heard of the yamas and niyamas about those, you know, the ethical precepts that you've talked about. And I appreciate the way that you shared them through your own learning and understanding, because I got some views that I hadn't had before, like about non-stealing, not just being about not taking other people's things, right. But about giving more than you receive. And I thought that was a really beautiful view. And similarly with that about nonviolence is not just about not hurting people, but a more active way of being kind and promoting, you know, service and, and, and recognizing our connection with other people. So I really, I just wanted to acknowledge that and, and tell you that I, I, I got a lot of value from that. And I hope and believe that readers will as well. The area on chakras I thought was really interesting because that's one of those things in my experience that I think is easy for many people to dismiss as like a new age thing or, you know, oh, there's that and kind of roll their eyes or just close their mind to that. But to me, this is, and I'd love to hear how you see this, but even if one doesn't take it literally, and perhaps it is literal, you know, I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm open to the possibility it is. But even if we don't take it literally, I think there's still a lot of value in the metaphors or the concepts or even the possibility that it is. But how do you see that as it relates to chakras? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's true. I don't think necessarily think you have to take it literally. Um, and I love that you're so open. Like, yeah, we don't have to, we don't have to determine. I believe in this or I don't believe in that. It's this idea. Oh, that's interesting. Hmm. It, maybe it'll percolate. But when you know, for instance, the, the shot, the throat chakra, when you know that that's also about expression, being authentic, the ability to express yourself authentically, to uh, artistically express yourself or not, uh, tell the truth in a conversation, maybe when you have to tell some someone what you're thinking, it's a difficult conversation, or um, and you feel it close, you mm-hmm. feel it close, you can't express yourself uh, For some reason, it's not coming. And then you can maybe delve a little deeper, like what's really happening here? It's not, you know, this shouldn't be difficult. Obviously, you know, I'm not being heard or I'm not being, and then it's just thought for contemplation and, and we can grow. And I think with the chakras, you can feel them very strongly in certain chakras, like the heart. We can feel heartbreak. Mm-hmm. We can feel, we can see someone who's heartbroken. They slouch. They're protecting their heart, that energy, which is fine to do. Sometimes we have to do that. It's a coping mechanism. But if it stays too long, if the energy doesn't flow for too long, we can have some complications in that area. So to know, to relax, to breathe, to let the energy flow, even if it's a little painful, is okay. Um, so, so I think it's the idea that there we're more than the physical body, that we are multidimensional and maybe not knowing what that means exactly, but being open to it can expand who we think we are and, and accepting that, accepting that we're more than just the physical body. Yeah, I think you're right. I, th- I absolutely think you're right. And one of the things that I appreciate about your work that 
I suspect people listening, whether they know it or not, when they came to, to this conversation, will also appreciate is what you're pointing to. So much of this, maybe all of this is about this embodied awareness and what you're saying now. And in the book you write, I love this sensation. So here's, here's words from page 57, at least of my advanced review copy. Sensation often moves through the body in the form of tears, discomfort, or pain, but it can result in a newfound spaciousness of the heart. The energy that was holding that emotion or memory in place is now freed. And I really appreciate this because when I look at my own life, I think about how I closed my heart. You described that I had a heartbreak in my, around my twenties and I closed my heart. I stopped trusting my emotions. I stopped paying attention to my own feelings. I would dismiss them or ignore them. And I think that's very common, especially in the United States where we do seem to, I mean, even the term, right? That corporations call us, we're consumers that we consume, but we don't necessarily not just give, but circulate the energy or be aware of what's going on. And, and I think that that can be a real challenge, not just for our physical health, but our emotional and, and our spiritual health as well. And, and the way that you talk about this in the book, um, I found to be really insightful, but I've also learned that not everyone, right? I think for people who can feel that who are in touch with their emotions or who do this body work, they might forget or just not know that other people, it doesn't come easily to some people. Right. What do you, what's your thought about that? Like, what about somebody who goes, okay, this is, this directionally feels right, but I don't know how to do that. Mm -hmm. Well, so your question, is it about if you're, you don't know how to feel it in the body Yeah. or okay. Maybe you don't trust it or you just don't know yeah. how, or yeah. How do you, how do you yeah. engage with that? How do you gain access to the information and the intelligence that's, that's there, but maybe you don't right. know how you don't trust. Right. Well, I think just knowing that you don't trust, that you're not letting it flow is just a way to put it. Um, I think that's an awareness that that's good. Like a lot of people aren't there. They're just doing, 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 uh, you know, maybe just not dealing with things or focusing on things that because they're busy doing and they don't want to go there. But once you turn around and you're saying, okay, I want to I wanna take a look within, I feel that there's a blockage or stagnation in this area of my life slash area of the body, and I want to look within, I think it really does come back to meditation, to quieting the mind, seeing what comes up, and focusing your attention on a part of the body or a situation calmly and understanding that sometimes it can be overwhelming and, and, it, and we don't want to go there. It's, and that's very common because meditation is excavating the mind. That's what it is. And this, I'm not a mental health professional. So I tread lightly here because I know how deep this is and how intense this work can be. So when we quiet the mind, and especially when we're opening to a situation in our an area in our life that we need attention, things may come up that are overwhelming and we do need to perhaps seek a counselor, a therapist, a friend, because it's a little too much. M many people just say, nope, I'm not gonna go there. Yeah. I don't want to, I'm going to close that. Nope. 
it's too painful. Uh, and I understand that. So, uh, but I think respecting and honoring the deep work and getting help, you don't have to do it alone. You can get help. And when you, like you said, when that energy starts to move, we, we realize how much energy was spent holding it down. And when that's freed, it's cathartic. It's a weight off and things open up in your life that you would not have imagined because that energy that was holding whatever in place is no longer doing that. So, so it can really be transformative. Yeah. I have a teacher who once said, he said it this way. He said, on the other side of any feeling fully felt is peace. <laughs> right. So but, simple. So perfect. Yeah. So perfect. But often we don't allow ourselves to feel the feeling fully. So we never get to the peace. Yeah. It, well, it's like the monster in the closet. Just, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to look, it's really bad. But when you open the door, it might not be that bad. Yeah. I want to ask about, I know this, this could be its own whole conversation, but I want to ask, what have you learned about breath? It's magic. It's just magic. And I, you know, I mentioned in the book, like nobody, I certainly didn't realize the power that it holds because it's so obvious. It's because we have it all the time, like our breath, we don't really appreciate or know what it really can do. And um, there's, there's one of the, uh, in the Yoga Sutras, Patanjali's Sutras, uh, he refers to the eight-limbed path. There's eight limbs that comprise yoga. And one of the limbs is asana or postures that the Western culture is really attached to. And one of them is pranayama or breath work, as important. And the Eastern traditions have really uh, studied and harnessed this power of the breath in so many different ways. Um, and we are, yogis have known it and yoga practitioners have been practicing breath work for a long time, but now it's interesting. Science is now like, you're not going to believe it. Slow breathing is good for you. <laughs> yeah, we knew, but, uh, yeah. And that's just one aspect. There's so many different breath practices that can help uh, just an array of different health benefits. Yeah. And I love the sentence you include in the book about, you say it's no coincidence that the words for breath and spirit are the same in many languages, including Sanskrit, Latin, Hebrew, Chinese, Norwegian, and Greek, and probably many more. <laughs> mm -hmm. that's, that's pretty amazing. And, and you just talked about pranayama. Will you talk a little more about prana? This is another one of those things that, again, I think it, it might be easy for people to, to dismiss or, you know, just whatever to not believe in, but I think there's something really interesting and, and deeply valuable in, in this, but what is prana, prana and how can we cultivate a more complete relationship with it? Mm -hmm. Well, prana is basically the cosmic life force. That's one way to, to, to see it or say it. It's just words again, but it's the energy that um, animates us the energy that makes up the universe, that spins the planets, that makes a seed grow, beats our heart. Um, I think I say in the book, there's, it's, if we're a light bulb, it's, it's the energy that lights the bulb. Um, so I think of a fish who's swimming in water, it's, it's our water. 
it's it's all around us and but we can, it's accessible to we can feel it we can some people can see it many people can see it we if we see a twinkle in someone's eye we're seeing prana um a parent you does like heals with prana it's a very we can add more prana to, it's a healing uh, uh practice when a child falls down skins their knee a parent instinctively puts the palm of their hand on the wound, sends healing or love through their palm. That's working with prana. So um, we all work with it. We just don't really think of it. Um, but through the breath, we can cultivate more prana for our physical body. It increases our vitality. Uh, eating healthy food, eating uh, fresh plant-based food is increasing our prana. Deep breathing increases our prana. So there are ways to work with it. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's one of those things, again, that I think is a concept that's a bit foreign to at least the way, you know, the Western worldview, which I was raised. Mm -hmm. But I think intuitively we have a sense of this. I mean, look at Star Wars, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. That there's the force and, and perhaps, you know, I don't know everything Lucas studied, of course, but but uh, independent of learning, like I said, I think we intuitively feel something like this, even though it's not a model we're taught, you know, in high school science or right. something. Pretty yeah, interesting. It's, not, it's just, I don't, it's not detected yet, but I do think it will be. And I, I do think it's sort of the future in terms of healing. Um, I, I think, you know, laser healing, laser surgery, I think that's almost, it's the beginning of it. But um, I, I think, again, feeling it in, for yourself in your own body is the best way to, to understand it, as opposed to uh, studying it in a book or reading about it. It's really through different breath practices and um, exercises that you can experience it for yourself rather than, um, you know, believing it, believing in it or not. Yeah. When you say that many people can see it, what do they see? And do you see it? Yeah, I, um, I do see prana. I, um, a, a lot of people see it in the mirror, believe it or not. <laughs> you can look in the mirror if you're relaxed and you're not trying to see it. You may see a little halo. It's like a, it's like a light just around the shoulders and head. And then when you look, it will disappear. And then you sort of see out of your peripheral vision, a little, a little light. That's kind of the first stage of seeing it. And, um, and there are exercises you can do if you'd like to see it. Um, and then if you kind of cultivate that, you begin to see colors. First, you'll see blue, then yellow, and then, and then more. It's always there. It's just, it's sort of widening your spectrum of sight. And, um, this is completely, you know, my experience is non-scientific, but um, from what I can tell, a lot of people see it if I have conversations with people and it's not something that I try to cultivate. It's not that important to me. Uh, maybe if I was a, an energy healer, a worker on people's bodies, I would want to see more, but um, I just think it's, we're all seeing it. Some people are aware of it and notice it and others don't. Yeah. I'm reminded, um, you know, someone I've learned from Sadhguru talks about when he was young, he didn't see people. 
he didn't see a body. He didn't see a form. He would just see like a cloud of energy. <laughs> like oh. that sounds really strange, but I'm going to, I'm going to trust you. Mm-hmm. Um, let me ask you this. What is, what is Kundalini? How is it different from prana? It's condensed prana. It's a, uh, it's a very powerful uh, form of prana life force and it flows freely in youngsters in uh, toddlers, babies and toddlers. And then sometime before puberty, it, it settles at the base of the tailbone. Kundalini means coiled snake. And because of that, it sort of sits dormant, coiled at the base of the tailbone for most people for their life. Um, but then the Kundalini energy can awaken and move up the spine. And it kind of moves like a snake, like a cobra, the way it goes back and forth, but it goes up the, uh, the main channel, um, our main channel along our spinal cord, piercing the major chakras as it goes up. And as it pierces the chakras, it uh, relates to like um, expanded states of awareness. So it's an awakening situation. And many people have written about their dramatic wake- awakenings. There's a lot of books written by different uh, people. Um, Eckhart Tolle, in his book, I believe it's The Power of Now, he writes about when his Kundalini awakened and he experienced this uh, awakening of his consciousness for the first time. And it was very dramatic for him. I think he, for two years, he really worked to integrate it. But for most people, uh, it's a very uh, natural, slow awakening um, where they have more uh, awareness, uh, more perception throughout their lives. Uh, but there's certain practices that you can do to awaken Kundalini. Uh, that's a big part of Kundalini yoga, that particular style. Although most styles of yoga uh and the style that I'm most closely associated with, most of them are saying, you don't have to do anything. Just do your yoga practice, live your life, and it will awaken at the proper and appropriate time when you're ready. Yeah, that, uh, that squares with something I've heard about. We wake up whenever we wake up. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? And sometimes trying can be an impediment to progress in many areas so. of life, right? Yeah, because why are you trying? <laughs> yeah. In the book, you mentioned that you had your own Kundalini experience. Will you, will you talk about that? What was that like? Okay. Once this was another experience where I really didn't know what was happening. <laughs> that seems to be my theme. Um, but I was on a retreat and it was a seven day retreat. And so that creates a lot of energy in the body, a lot of pranic buildup maybe. Um, and the last night of the um, retreat, there was a kirtan. And I didn't really know what a kirtan was, but it's, it's at that time, it's a chant and response concert. So it was, I was on my own at the retreat. So I thought I would go, I sat in the back because I thought I'd probably sneak out, but uh, the music was amazing. People were chanting these uh, uh, mantras, the singers, and it was almost like a, like a experience, like a rock and roll, like a musical festival. It was really great. I was surprised. I didn't really think it would be that way. So I'm really all in, I'm swaying and chanting and it was winding down and I was sitting on a cushion cross-legged in the back of the room, a big like assembly type room. And all of a sudden my spine just went like straight and just like stood up really straight and I couldn't move. And 
I didn't know what was happening. And I tried to like uncross my legs and nope, they were just, I just was sitting and my chin tucked and I knew something was happening, but I really didn't know what um, I'd heard of Kundalini. So I thought it had something to do with that. So I just sat there while everyone started leaving the concert. And then I started to panic a little bit because I couldn't move and I didn't know anyone. And I thought I was going to have to ask a stranger for help. Um, but slowly my body started to relax and I got up and like darted back to my room. I was a little bit freaked out and I couldn't sleep the whole night, but I wasn't tired. Um, and I remember just trying to meditate and get calm and kind of getting the inner message that everything's okay. That was just a result of the retreat. <laughs> Stay calm. And nothing like that has ever happened since. So wow. it's really interesting. Yeah, it, it is. And I know that these unusual, these extraordinary experiences can be intriguing, right? For practitioners. And like you said, you know, teachers will often counsel, don't seek those, just do your practice. If they happen, <laughs> they happen. But nevertheless, they're, I think they're inherently interesting because they are unusual. But along those lines, there's something, I want to go back to the ethical precepts for a moment, because you point out that teachers will say that abiding by these will endow us with, you know, certain whatever powers or gifts or strengths or, or something. And there's a name for that, right? If I have it right, it's because the precepts are the yamas, the niyamas, but then the, the gift or the, the power is a CD. CD? CD. Mm -hmm. Yes. CD. Will you talk about that? What, I mean, this is really interesting to me because I think in our, so to, to try to give this a little bit of a frame that hopefully is useful for a listener, that is, it's inherent in the words we're using, an ethical precept, right? Again, it's yeah. not a religious thing. It's not a, again, as we've already said, it's not a set of commandments, but it's this this uh, promise from ancient sages saying, if you live this way, and of course you're under no obligation to do so, it's not going to get you into heaven. You're not going to go to hell if you don't, but if you do, then life or whatever will endow you with certain gifts. Do I, do I have that kind of how you understand yeah. it? Yeah. I think the yamas and the yamas are guides for good living. And if you don't want to, you know, if you don't want to live by that, that's okay. Um, but there, this is going to help you be more you. Because a, the yoga tradition is that we are all going back to try to remember or find this little diamond within our divinity within. So it's aligning with our true nature. Our true nature is, is again, this is where words don't work. So just leave it at that. But each yama has a, a power and the tradition calls it like a power, you know, a, a city. Uh, we can think of it like a gift. And um, so I think, you know, it's nice to know that, but again, like, I, I feel like it's not, you shouldn't really try to get stuff. You know, it's, it's one thing where, um, uh, you know, to just be open to it and see what happens. So um, just trying to think of a, a, one of the gifts. So, so if we're, we practice nonviolence, um, the environment that we're in will become so peaceful that they'll, they'll, we won't experience violence. 
eventually. And that's, I give the example of St. Francis in the book where there's so many stories of, of him, just animals, just wild animals becoming tame around him because he was a master of nonviolence or um, not stealing. If we don't take, uh, we'll achieve abundance. Uh, that's the gift of that. Um, if we're content, the, the gift is joy, supreme joy. So that's a beautiful idea. Yeah. So each, each one has a gift. And I think it's, um, yeah, it's, it's nice to have a bonus. But even without the bonus, the yogis teach that living in alignment and cultivating these, these yamas and niyamas will help your life, will benefit you. And, and the other idea that I love about the yamas is, and niyamas is, it's part of your character, but it's improvable. You know, like in terms of contentment, I didn't realize that could be a practice. I thought that, oh, it's cold outside. I'm so happy to be warm. I feel content. It's like a feeling that arises. It's nothing I can do. <laughs> but the yogis teach us that you, it's actually a practice. You kind of have to practice that because um, that's how you're happy. That's how you become joyful. It's not the other way around. So, oh, I think it's very empowering to know that you can practice contentment. Yeah, absolutely. I've, for the last few years, I've really, uh, last few years, especially I've become convinced that living, living is a skill <laughs> and we can improve our skill. And what you're talking about is a perfect example of that. Absolutely. Well, we've covered a lot. Uh, what haven't we talked about that you want to talk about, or you think might uh, be of benefit to the listener? Oh, I think, yeah, I loved our conversation. Um, I think, I think the idea that when I first learned this idea, this was the mind, mind blowing turning point for me with yoga was that you are not your thoughts, that this mind, this, this constant narrator who, you know, I thought that's who I was, my judgments, my opinions, my personality, this constant in my head, that's who I was. I just thought that um, I didn't realize that was not who I was. So when I realized that it kind of made my life more exciting and, you know, the idea of aging, getting older, you know, in our culture, there's kind of nothing good about it. Yeah, so, there's nothing good about it. But when you realize this, this deeper part of yourself and start exploring in that realm, It'll be, it's exciting because in 20 years from now, you know, I'll have different ideas and different thoughts and, and it'll add more, hopefully, peace and joy and share more peace and joy. So, so anyway, that's, that's what, what I think for me was one of the biggest um, light bulbs in the yoga, in practice of yoga. Oh, yeah. It's so beautiful. And I, I agree. I mean, in our especially American culture where we prize youth, youthfulness mm -hmm. and kind of the elderly, we tend to put them away and, you know, put them in homes or, or care centers or whatever. And I always thought that aging was this just slow, steady decline into decrepitude <laughs> and dysfunction, <laughs> you know, and nothing, nothing uh, good would come of it. And then it wasn't until I read 
some of Yogananda's words where he talked about, we can age and expire. We don't actually ever need to decay, right? And get disease. Disease is not an inevitable part of aging. I thought that is not how Americans see this at all. And I really, I mean, what you're saying between you are not your thoughts and you're not your body. And this, and then to see that in the Indian culture, and this is a bit of a generalization perhaps, but that the last few years are reserved for looking inward, especially the last few years, looking inward. And there's one thing Sadhguru told me about this saying in India that no man or no person should be carried to his grave. It's like, that is amazing that we live such a self-determined life and we're so prepared when the time comes to die that we ourselves go to the spot where we will die. Like that is amazing. And that's what I love. I really do. I know I've said this a couple of times in different ways, but I appreciate that you, that you're writing on these topics and that you've been teaching these and you're spreading a message that really does improve or can improve the quality of life for people here in the United States that, you know, it's not for everybody, but it's for more people than I think are aware of it today. So it's great. It's a great message. And this is, I do have more questions I want to ask you, but um, this part of the conversation and reading your book has been so fun. Oh, thank you so much. Brilliant. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing very well. Good. Okay. Well, here's what I've got. I know we've got about a half hour, maybe or so. Um, what I'd like to do is ask you some questions in the lightning lightning round. I think it's about nine or 10 questions. And then just a few about writing and creativity. Okay, great. Okay. Sure. Awesome. Again, this, these questions, my aim is to ask the question and for the most part, stand aside, just let you answer and I'll keep us moving through them. You are welcome to answer as long as you want, however. Okay. Okay. So the enlightening lightning round question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a, a great adventure. Okay. Question number two, here I'm borrowing the technologist and investor, Peter Thiel's question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? I think, I think, uh, everyone can meditate. I think most people don't think they can meditate, but I think everybody can meditate. Okay. Question number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Uh, I think it would say, it's okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> These are short. <laughs> Question number four, what book other than your own have you gifted or recommended most often? This is easy. Uh, Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. Mm. How did this book come into your life? It was so long ago, I don't remember, but I would not be surprised if it was at that time in my 20s when I was dealing with Bell's palsy and um, learning new things. And the the reason I love this book and uh, I I recommend it or, or give it to people is when I first read it, it, what comes through is what a seeker he is from his heart. Yeah. Like it's just, you know, from, from childhood, he just wants, he just wants to know. And he just, 
he just goes and and you know I felt like if you feel that way I think many of us feel that way and you sort of feel a little bit alone in that mm-hmm. you know no not everyone's interested <laughs> in, in this sort of thing but when you read his work and you you just it just comes through his words you feel it and he brings you along and and you know uh, what he sees what he writes about you again you don't have to believe it 100% or it's just this open it's like expanding our ideas of what is life and like what what is possible you know the, for the human being yeah. and learning more and more it's just uh, it's just such a beautiful book so um so that's why awesome yeah i totally agree this is a book that changed my life changed the trajectory of my life and one of the things that I really love about Yogananda is about his writing is so poetic mm. and his love of, I mean, I think he speaks English better than I do, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but his love of also flowers and gardens and, and poetry, and he combines all that so beautifully. And there is this taste of the mystical mm-hmm. in there that's so fantastic. And, you know, other things that are so far outside my prior life experience that I just wanted to know more, but yeah, that's awesome. What are you currently reading? I'm reading right now, uh, Michael Pollan, um, how to change your mind. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. This idea again, the same sort of thing, like, well, stop limiting ourselves. You know, there's more to our, uh, consciousness. I like how he puts one thing in the book where he's like, he saw his mind and then there was a little door that he hadn't noticed before (laughs) in his mind. And he yeah. opened it and went out, yeah. <laughs> went through. And I think that was a great, I, I, I love that idea. Yeah, that's wonderful. You know, he has a new book coming out this year. Oh, really? Yeah, already. Oh, I, think wow. I think it's next month also, which as we're recording this, I know things on the internet live forever, but we're recording this here in August of 2021. Pam's book, Threads of Yoga, will be released is it September 24th. September 28th, 28th, next month. Yeah. Yeah, next month. Okay. We'll keep going. Question number five. So in your life, you've traveled a lot. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do when you travel or something you take with you to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? That's okay. I think don't bring toddlers is the number one thing. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I think for me, it's, it's, uh, you know, ear pods, uh, water and a good book. Mm. And I'm good to go. Yeah, that's great. Question number six is almost like a trick question, but it's not. <laughs> What's one thing you started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Well, I think the obvious is exercise more, eat better foods. Um, not going to lie. I do like my face creams, <laughs> skin, taking care of your skin. But uh, yeah, I think it's the basics. I think it's going to the basics and uh, stopping with all the uh, extraneous stuff and necessary, including food. Mm. But not entirely, right? You're not a breath. No, 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 no. Include it's like the extra food, you know, and I, 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 this is a practice for me. This is definitely, I'm not saying I do it. (laughs) This is a practice. Well, and that was, yeah, it's a, that's a yama though. Right. Because what is it? um, Is it self-discipline? Um. Yeah. Tapas. tapas. Uh, yes. Tapas is, uh, yeah. So when I do, you know, when, when I do have to, you know, really curtail something in terms of 
exercise, doing more exercise or eating less, I make it a spiritual practice. Like it's, it's definitely more, uh, I can do it if it's a spiritual practice. Um, and tapas is the idea of, uh, growing or learning from the heat of, uh, pain or challenge, accepting it as a way to grow. And I think that's a great perspective. I love that. I love the sentence you include in the book that tapas aims to purify and empower us to discover and know our real strength and potential. That's really cool. Okay. Question number seven, what's something, what's one thing you wish every American knew? I think that people are people no matter where they're from or what they do. It's people are people. And I think everyone, not only Americans, we should all know this, that um, people are people and there's good people. There's people that are trying. There's people that are not trying um, in every culture. And it's, but there's just not the differences that I think we all perceive. Sometimes they're just not there. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, that reminds me of another sentence from your book I loved that you write, we forget that saints, Buddhas, and sages were real imperfect people who were transformed through devotion, guidance, willpower, and grace. So, all right. Um, Okay. Question number eight, excuse me. Speaking of people is about relationships. What's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? I think it's listen, listen, and also respect everyone's journey. Nobody's perfect. We're all imperfect. So don't expect perfection and just listen. Okay. And question number nine, aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money? This is a definitely a practice for me. And it's this idea of contentment and gratefulness and just focusing on what you have and being grateful. And, you know, I think that's with money, we can just focus on not having enough all the time or because there's, it's never enough. There's always, you know, so I feel that idea of just being really super grateful all the time and doing our best, you know, doing our best in, in, in our lives uh, uh, to achieve our goals, but being grateful. Yeah. You know, what you're saying reminds me of, uh, something I once read Rockefeller said, he, I think it was, you know, what being rich is, it's one more zero than you have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay. So if people want to learn more from you or if they want to connect with you, what would you have them do? Well, thanks. Uh, My website is PamelaSeelig.com. And I have my contact information there and any classes that are happening. Um, So yeah, they can just go to that website. And my book is there too. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Threads of Yoga. People can find there, hopefully at their local bookseller or of course online at a bookseller. Mm -hmm. Uh, The classes that you mentioned, are they available online? Are they in person? If so, what's the geography? Well, uh, yeah, since the pandemic, I've been teaching online and mostly what, what I've taught and what I'm teaching right now is a meditation introduction to meditation. It doesn't take a lot of time, it's three weeks, but it's just one hour a week. And because you really have to do it on your own, 
So the one hour, the first week is breath. We learn a technique, a couple techniques. You practice it for that week, come back. It's nice because you hear questions. We all kind of have the same questions and hit the same obstacles. Second week, we layer on a mantra, practice for a week. And the third, we do some guided work and self-inquiry. And it that usually can establish a home practice that you can then go in and develop yourself. So, so that's what I'm teaching right now. Awesome. Okay. And um, I'm going to say this here, so I'm sure to include it, but as a, as an expression of gratitude to you for making time to talk with me and share your lessons and insights with me and everyone listening, something I've done is I've gone online to Kiva.org and I've made a micro loan to a woman named Savara in Tajikistan. And uh, she will use this money. She's 30 years old. She's married. She has three kids and she, in, she's engaged in the, her family's business of breeding cattle, but um, she's going, she's had some medical issues and she's going to use this money actually to help um, cover those medical bills so that she can get back uh, active and healthy again. So thank you for giving me a reason to go make that loan. And I'm, I hope that in some way, this conversation will do some good in the world far beyond what we might uh, ever be aware that it does. Oh, thank you, Brilliant. That is so beautiful. That really is terrific. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Okay. So the last few questions here are about writing and writing and creativity. Um, let me start with this. When did you, when did you first know you were a writer? Well, uh, when I was young, when I was a kid, I, thought that I would be a writer. That's what I always thought because it was something I just loved to do. I enjoyed doing and it came easily to me. But, um, and I always journaled. Um, but as I got older and sort of the reality of, of life hit me, I didn't want to be a writer because I wanted to be able to support myself and not have financial issues. So that kind of went out the window, sadly. Um, I always journaled, but, um, Every job that I had, though, I usually ended up doing the writing. Even in the financial world, I would write the proposals that were submitted. Um, so, you know, it, it really wasn't until I, I thought I would be a writer, sort of gave that, put that in the background. Um, life happened. And then in, when I started teaching yoga and realized I couldn't find this book that I wanted, it was, I was kind of excited to to get into that project. Yeah, that's great. Writing a book is no small feat. It's right up there with, you know, it's maybe above running a marathon or even earning a college degree. A lot of other things that, you know, our society recognizes and celebrates how, as a practical matter, how did you organize your life and your time in order to do the work required to get the book written and published? Well, I think part of it was I had really no idea how much work and what what it entailed. Um, but my timing was very good. I uh, owned a yoga studio for nine years and sold it uh, after nine years because my husband and I wanted to move to the city. Uh, we were empty nesting, at least moved to New York City during the week um, because our kids were gone. And he it was a long commute. So he, then he wouldn't have to commute. We loved the city. Um, so it was sort of a dream that we went back. So um, selling the studio, 
I had space in my life and I thought now or never. And I also was living in a new place where I didn't have any distractions. So it was really perfect. Uh, looking back right now, it was perfect. But even with that, you know, you can always find distractions, especially in New York City. So I had to be disciplined and I, I made sure uh, four and a half to five hours a day was dedicated to writing. Um, I would have, I would have done longer, but I found my brain couldn't do more than four hours, at least well. So, and I just stuck to that four hours a day, pretty much um, until it was written. And I thought I was going to self-publish. I didn't think I would find a publisher. I didn't, I just wanted to write the book to see if I could really do it. Mm -hmm. um, and then I went to the process of trying to see how to publish. Um, so, and that was like a whole, that, that when then, when I realized the process for that, that, that led me down a whole new path. So it was kind of a, a, a learning as you go. Yeah. I, I definitely want to ask you about that, but I want to stay for, for the moment with this about the four, four and a half hours a day. What was your routine? Like, did you write at the same time every day? Are you an early bird or a night owl? Did you have a word count? Did you do anything to track your progress? Like how did all that work? Um, for me, it worked the way that I found that I could write for four hours was I had to do a solid practice in the morning. So for me, that means at least 30 minutes of meditation and at least an hour of a physical practice. So I had to, I had to get that like myself in that space. Uh, and at that time, I just felt so grateful that I had the time to do that because most of my life, I would never have had that kind of time to dedicate. So I know this is a little unrealistic for most people and I feel bad about that, but just in that time, um, I had the space. So I made sure that, you know, I had my practice, sat down. I really got into coffee. I have to say, <laughs> I'm now a coffee connoisseur. <laughs> I guess that's a writer thing. <laughs> and, um, and then I could, I could, you know, the meditation, especially then I, my mind was out of the way. The ego was out of the way. You know, the idea, this isn't good enough was out of the way. And I could just, I could feel the flow most days, of course, not all days. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know that some writers, many, um, although not, of course, not everyone has the means to, to do this, but they'll actually lease another space, like another, you know, whether it's a office space somewhere or a cottage, or they'll at least build a shed or they'll have a dedicated, you know, turn a garage into something. Did you, obviously in the city, there's probably not a lot of, you know, options like that, but how did you manage the space in which you worked? Because sometimes I think it can be hard to transition, right? From living and especially if you're with other people, it sounds like you were, you know, you were with your husband and, and this, how did you manage the space that you were in as part of the creative endeavor? So for us, for me, it was so easy because going to the city, my kids were in school. They're not home. They're uh, in their twenties. So going to the city, they were gone. And my husband went to work during the day in the city. So this was pre-pandemic, so I had the space to myself. It was a little space, but it was perfect. Uh, so that's that enabled me. But I can totally understand how you need to get out of your house to go, because being at home, there was just always a distraction. There's always something to do. There's always an errand. There's always a laundry. There's always a phone call, email. 
So I think you really do have to set your own boundaries, however that works for you. Yeah, for sure. And we all, pretty much everyone, right, has the constant challenge of being connected to the internet on the same device that we're writing on. And we can right. easily justify, oh, it's research, or I'm just going to check one thing, you know, right. respond to this email. How did you, how did you overcome that? I just felt so lucky, you know, again, this is sort of a dream to be able to write, you know, and it was always in the back of my mind my whole life. So I just felt so lucky to be able to have this space and to be able to do it. I didn't want to let it go. You know, I just, I just felt that gratefulness, I guess, and contentment. So I think that kept me really motivated. That is like the best answer ever. Like I was just oh. so grateful <laughs> that I wasn't distracted. Right. Was like I, I did. I, I really felt I, yeah. I, uh, I did actually, I just, I just knew how rare it was. Cause my, you know, most, we just don't get that in our lives most of the time. So. Yeah, absolutely. How, how connected did you feel to your reader in the act of writing? I felt very connected. I felt there were times when I would think of a specific person and be like, oh, I know that like in a chapter, she should know this. This is so important. This would help her so much. You know, I, I really felt that as I was writing. Wow. That's pretty cool. My experience is that can make, sometimes I can make writing more challenging, imagining the audience you're writing for, but other times it can actually help a lot. And I'm with that question, I'm amazed at how some writers say, I didn't really have a reader in mind. I just kind of wrote it or I wrote it for myself and other people are very clear. So I'm always interested in how people respond to that. Mm -hmm. Let me go to the, that kind of line that you were talking about with publishing where your intent was and your thought was at the beginning, you would just self-publish this, but ultimately you didn't. In fact, Shambhala is a very well respected publisher. That's and congrats on getting published by now. How did, uh, how did you, transition from thinking you would just self-publish to publishing with Shambhala? Well, I have to say that well, as I wrote, I didn't have a publisher and I think that helped. Like I really didn't necessarily think a lot of people would read this. So it, it helped with my, that ego aspect. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't that I didn't have big dreams or want, I was limiting myself. I just really didn't give it too much thought. Mm -hmm. So that I think helped. Um, and from what I read about finding a publisher, it didn't seem realistic for me to expect to just get a publisher on my first book. Well, apparently when I read about, you know, how to find a publisher, when I Googled that, it was, you know, you have to have a platform. Um, that was the main thing. I'll mm -hmm. stop there. You know, and I, and a platform meaning 10,000 followers minimum, um, so I didn't have that, nor was I interested in really going, trying to get that, mm -hmm. especially before you have a book. Like, why are people following you? You know, I had my yoga students that I loved and they were really terrific, but um, I wasn't spending my time promoting myself. Um, I just wasn't doing that, nor did I feel like I wanted to. So I didn't think I would be able to get a publisher. But then when I finished the book and I thought it was pretty good, 
<laughs> I'd said, I'm going to give myself six months and I'm going to try really hard. I'm going to give it my best shot to, to get a publisher, which then I realized after I Googled, you know, how to get, you have to have an agent. <laughs> so I said, I'll give myself six months to get an agent. And um, I, uh, I was able to get an agent. And that was, I, I read a book called um, Online Marketing for Busy Authors. Uh, to help me build a platform, at least enough to. And the author was Fauzia Burke. And she, I felt like she was writing to me, like, I know this is making your stomach hurt, trying to promote yourself and you, and, but you have to do it. And this is why you have an important message and stop thinking of yourself. Think of the yoga or whatever. So reading her book, really, coach, by the way, <laughs> just hearing yeah. that, I don't know her, but hearing that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I I took it as a personal coach, and um, and she was ter- terrific. And um, so then I was able to get an agent through some synchronicity, and and he. What was the synchronicity? You know, well, I I called the author of this book and said, um, I loved your book. You know, do you do you work with people? Because um, I'm really struggling with this platform thing. It's just not me, uh-huh. and. Um, she was great. She said, we can help you with your, your website, you know? And, and so she was great, but she basically helped me, you know, she gave me the confidence, some contacts, and it was really through that, uh, you know, innocent phone call that everything started rolling. So, um, and my, my agent was terrific. Uh, he told me my, you know, about the proposal, the proposal, which took many months and how it wasn't good enough. And I had to keep doing it. And uh, it was hard. Um, and, but he believed in the idea. He really, he said, oh, I think you have something here. So, so he took me on and, and, and went from there. So it was, um, it, it happened step by step. I think if I had seen the big, in the beginning, if I'd known, uh, you know, if I wanted to get Shambhala as a publisher, I don't think I could have done it. I think I, for my personality, I just had to go, just first write the book and see if you can do it. Yeah. Then see if you can get a platform. Then see if you can get an agent. I think I couldn't, I couldn't do the whole thing in one thought for yeah. sure. That's part of what makes that so awesome. And, and I, I'm just reminded how every book has its own story, you know, how it came yeah. into existence and, and they're all unique. And I think about how many of the things, you know, and there is no path, although there are prescriptions offered online, no shortage of those. But I love that yours was not that traditional path. And, you know, that many people say, start with a book proposal. Don't, don't write the whole manuscript first, but that's what you did. And then you are able to find the agent and get the deal. But how did you find the agent? Did you just Google and just interview people or how did you get a referral or how did that happen? No, I, I went back to my, my corporate training and I made an Excel spreadsheet and I had, you know, 60 agents down the side who were in nonfiction, you know, this sort of uh, category and sent a letter to all of them and got some, you know, most I didn't hear from, I would say 80, 85% I didn't hear from. Some people were very kind. um, And some people, I remember one agent, a very well-known agent called me and told, gave me good, she read, she asked to see the proposal, read it and called me and gave me some great advice. Um, that I'm so glad I didn't take. <laughs> and uh, okay, wait. Now said, you got to tell us that. <laughs> what was? 
she said, you have to find a young, popular yoga teacher, you know, somebody who has a big platform, who's very popular, you know, who's kind of opposite of me mm-hmm. and do the project together. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was like, Oh no, <laughs> I don't think, I don't think that'll work. But, um, but she was so kind to think about it, give me her best ideas. And that might've been, that might've been the best, who knows? Yeah. So, um, but, uh, and so a couple of agents did contact me and, and asked to see it. And, um, but it was really through um, Fauzia Burke, who, who said she knew someone and, uh, and I was able to send it to, to him and he, with a lot of work and he really, I give him a lot of credit. He was in the business. So he said, Nope, this isn't going to work. This has to be like this. And I I knew he's the professional and he never asked me to change, you know, anything about the subject matter, you know? So that was, I was more than willing to learn about the business. Yeah. You know, what I love about what you just shared is, is something that I've seen is a, such a challenge can be such a challenge for writers is knowing when to trust someone else and when to trust yourself, right. Mm-hmm. On whatever aspect, the cover design, the structure of the book, the content of the book, the, the voice, you know, a certain mm-hmm. passage or chapter, like, but mm-hmm. kudos to you for, for navigating that in the way that you Thank did. You. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Well, um, really, I think the, the only other question that I want to ask well, two, two questions about writing and creativity. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about related to that, to these topics that you think might be of service to the listener? Well, I guess in terms of creativity, the practice of meditation, I'm like a salesperson for meditation. <laughs> the practice of meditation creates this quiet mind mm-hmm. and it's not totally quiet. It's not, it's just a little bit of quiet. It's just the creative state. It just, um, it's where we get ideas from. They're there usually, but we can't hear them because of the habitual thoughts. But the only time we can get an inspired thought is when that thought stream is moved over. So I think for any creative pursuit, meditation is essential. Yeah, absolutely. And then perhaps the closing question, what advice or encouragement would you leave those listening with who either are harboring a dream of writing and publishing their own book, or they're actually in the process. They're maybe stuck in the process. What do you say to to people to help them get their own project across the finish line and out into the world in a way that makes a difference? Well, I'm, you know, I'm learning all this myself right now. So I, from my experience, my learning, that's obviously still happening. It's just, you know, believe in yourself. Like it's true. Like you have, you know, unique ideas and ways to bring them forth. So you have to believe in yourself and that comes from within. So don't, don't expect it from other people really just, I think, believe in yourself and um, keep moving forward. Awesome. All right. Well, Pam, thank you so much for making the time to, to have this conversation. As I said before, I've really enjoyed it. 
taken away a lot from the book and from what we've talked about today. And I know that uh, my life is better because, because we connected. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Brilliant. I really enjoyed our conversation. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the school for good living podcast. Before you take off, just want to extend an invitation to you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people. Whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or they live in conflict zones, there are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better, consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated, or you've gone through a divorce, or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep in every area of your life, to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself in a community of other growth-minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential. It can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.